Section 11 of History of Modern Philosophy by Alfred William Benn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. The German Idealists. Part 2. G. W. F. Hegel. 1770-1831. In the opinion of some good judges, Germany's greatest philosopher was like Schelling a Schwabian and intimately associated with his younger contemporary, first at Tübingen and afterwards at Jena, where the two friends jointly conducted a philosophical review. But they gradually drifted apart. Hegel was not a romanticist, but a classic, not a naturalist, but a humanist. Largely influenced by Greek thought and Greek literature, for which he continued to be an enthusiast through life, he readily accepted, as against Kant and Fichte, the change from a purely subjective to an objective point of view. But although he gave some attention to physical science, Hegel was less interested in it than his colleague, with whose crude and fanciful metaphysics he also failed to sympathize. With the publication of Hegel's first important work, The Phenomenology of Mind, 1807, things came to a breach. For its preface amounts to a declaration of war against the philosophy of Romanticism. Schelling himself is not named, but there is no mistaking the object of certain picturesque references to exploding the absolute on us, and the darkness in which every cow is black. Next year Hegel became what we should call headmaster of a public school at Nuremberg, filling that post for eight years, during which his greatest work, The System of Logic, in three volumes, was composed and published. He then obtained a chair of philosophy at Heidelberg, passing thence to Berlin in 1818, where he taught until his death by cholera in 1831. David Strauss, who saw the revered teacher a few days before the fatal seizure, describes him first as he appeared in the lecture room, looking ever so old, bent, and coughing, then in his home, looking ten years younger with clear blue eyes and showing the most beautiful white teeth when he smiled. He had published a summary of his whole system under the name of an Encyclopedia of the Philosophical Sciences in 1817, and a Philosophy of Law, which is really a treatise on government, in 1821. His sympathies were with bureaucratic absolutism in a modernized form, with Napoleon against the German patriots, with the restored Prussian government against the new liberalism, with English Toryism against the Whigs of the Reform Bill, and finally with the admirers of war against the friends of peace. Hegel's collected works published after his death fill over twenty good-sized volumes. Besides the treatises already mentioned, they include his lectures on the history of philosophy, the philosophy of history, and philosophy of religion, aesthetics, etc., made up with much literary skill from the professor's own notes and from the reports of his hearers. The most permanently valuable of these is the aesthetics. But any student desirous of getting a notion of Hegelianism at first hand had better begin with the philosophy of history, of which there is a good and cheap English translation in one of the Bone Libraries. 
Some general points of view serving to connect the system with its predecessors are all that room can be found for here. As compared with Kant, Hegel is distinguished above all by his complete abjuration of the agnostic standpoint in epistemology. The universe is penetrable to thought. An unknowable thing in itself does not exist. Indeed, the intelligible reality of things is just what we know best. The unaccountable residuum, if any, lurks in the details of their appearance. So also in Greek philosophy Hegel holds that the truth was not in the ideal world of Plato, but in the self-realizing forms of Aristotle. As against Fichte, Hegel will not allow that the reconciliation of the subjective with the objective is an infinitely far-off divine event. On the contrary, it is a process being continually realized by ourselves and all about us. In his homely expression, the very animals, as they eat, turn their food into consciousness in utter disregard of prejudice. But Fichte's condemnation of Schelling's indifferentism is quite right. The absolute is mind. Nature exists only as the lower stage, when spirit emerges to contradict, to confront, and to explain her as the necessary preparation for his supreme self-assertion. And Fichte was right in working out his system by the dialectical method of contradiction and solution, as against the dogmatism that summarily decrees the absolute, without taking the trouble to reason it out, in imitation of the plan pursued by the universe in becoming conscious of itself. The most portentous thing about Hegel's philosophy is this notion of the world's having, so to speak, argued itself into existence. To rationalize the sum of being, to explain without assumptions why there should be anything, and then why it should be as we know it, had been a problem suggested by Plato and solved rather summarily by Spinoza's challenge to conceive infinite power as non-existing. Hegel is more patient and ingenious. But after all, his superiority merely consists in spinning the web of arbitrary dialectic so fine that we can hardly see the thread. The root idea is to identify, or rather to confuse, causal evolution with logic. The chain of causes and effects that constitute the universe is made out to be one with the series of reasons and consequence by which the conclusion is demonstrated. As usual, the equation is affected by a transference of terms from one side to the other. The categories and processes of logic are credited with a life and movement that belongs only to the human reasoner operating with them. And the moving, interacting masses of which the material universe consists are represented as parties to a dialectical discussion in which one denies what the other asserts until it is discovered on lifting the argument to a higher plane that, after all, they are agreed. Nor is this all. The world as we know it is composed of coexistent elements grouped together or distinguished according to their resemblances and differences as so many natural kinds and of successive events linked together as causes and effects. 
But while there is no general law of coexistence, except such as may be derived from the collocation of the previously existing elements whence they are derived, there is a law of causal succession, namely this, that the quantities of mass and energy involved are conserved without loss or gain through all time. Now Hegel's way of rationalizing, or in plainer words accounting, for the coexistent elements and their qualities, is to bring them under a supposed law of complementary opposition, revived from Heraclitus, according to which everything necessarily involves the existence, both in thought and reality, of its contradictory. And the same principle is applied to causal succession, a proceeding which would be fatal to the scientific law of conservation. There is another way of rationalizing experience, namely, the theological hypothesis of a supreme intelligence by which the world was created and is governed with a view to the attainment of some ultimate good. And there is a sort of teleology in Hegel, evidently inspired by his religious education. But the two do not mean the same thing. For he places conscious reason not at the beginning, but at the end of evolution. The rationality of things is imminent, not transcendent. Purposes somehow work retrospectively, so as to determine the course of events toward a good end. That end is self-consciousness, not yours or mine, but the world spirit's consciousness and possession of itself. And this is reached in four ways. In art by intuition, in religion by representation, in philosophy by conception, in history and politics by the realization of righteousness through the agency of the modern state. Hegel looked on this world and this life of ours as the only world and the only life. When Heine pointed to the starry skies, he told the young poet that the stars were a brilliant leprosy on the face of the heavens, and met the appeal for future compensation with the sarcastic observation, So you expect the Twinkgelt for nursing your sick mother and for not poisoning your brother? German historians have justly extolled the ingenuity, the subtlety, the originality, the systematizing power, unequaled since Aristotle, and the enormous knowledge of their country's chief idealist. But this, after all, amounts to no more than claiming for Hegel that much of what he said is true and that much is new. The vital question is whether what is new is also true, and this is more than they seem prepared to maintain. Schopenhauer The leaders of the party known in the fourth and fifth decades of the last century as Young Germany, among whom Heinrich Heine, 1797 to 1856, was the most brilliant and famous, were more or less associated with the Hegelian school. They were, however, what Hegel was not, political revolutionists with a tendency to socialism, while their religious rationalism, unlike his, was openly proclaimed. The temporary collapse in 1849 of the movement they initiated brought discredit on idealism as represented by Germany's classic philosophers, 
which also had been seriously damaged by the luminous criticism of Trendelenburg, the neo-Aristotelian professor at Berlin, 1802-1872. At this crisis, attention was drawn to the long-neglected writings of Arthur Schopenhauer, 1788-1860, which then attained a vogue that they never since have lost. The son of a Hamburg banker and of a literary lady whose novels enjoyed some reputation in their day, he was placed from the beginning in a position of greater material and social independence than usually falls to the lot of German thinkers. And to this, combined with the fact that he failed entirely as a university teacher, it is partly due that he wrote about philosophy not like a pedant, but like a man of the world. At the same time, the German professors, resenting the intrusion of an outsider on their privileged domain, were strong enough to prevent the reading public from ever hearing of Schopenhauer's existence until an article in the Westminster Review, April 1853, astonished Germany by the revelation that she possessed a thinker whom the man in the street could understand. Schopenhauer found his earliest teachers of philosophy in Plato and Kant. He then attended Fichte's lectures at Berlin. At some uncertain date, probably soon after taking his doctor's degree in 1813, at the suggestion of an Orientalist, he took up the study of the Vedanta system. All these various influences converged to impress him with the belief that the things of sense are a delusive appearance under which a fundamental reality lies concealed. According to Hegel, the reality is reason. But the Romanticists, with Schelling at their head, never accepted his conclusion, thinking of the absolute rather as a blind, unconscious substance. Still less could it please Schopenhauer, who sought for the supreme good under the form of happiness conceived as pleasure unalloyed by pain. A gloomy and desponding temperament, combined as in the case of Byron and Rousseau, with passionately sensuous instincts and antisocial habits, debarred him from attaining it. The loss of a large part of his private fortune and the world's refusal to recognize his genius completed what natural temperament had begun, and it only remained for the philosopher of the Upanishads to give a theoretic sanction to the resulting state of mind by teaching that all existence is in itself an evil, a position which placed him in still more thoroughgoing antagonism to Hegel. It will be remembered that Kant's criticism had denied the human mind all knowledge of things in themselves, and that the post-Kantian systems had been so many efforts to get at the absolute in its despite. But none had stated the question at issue so clearly as Schopenhauer put it, or answered it in such luminous terms. Like theirs, his solution is idealist, but the idealism is constructed on new lines. If we know nothing else, we know ourselves, only it has to be ascertained what exactly we are. Hegel said that the essence of consciousness is reason, and that reason is the very stuff of which the world is made. No, replies Schopenhauer, that is a one-sided scholastic view. Much the most important part of ourselves is not reason, 
but that very unreasonable thing called will, that aimless, hopeless, infinite, insatiable craving, which is the source of all our activity and of all our misery as well. This is the thing in itself, the timeless, inextended entity behind all phenomena, come to the consciousness of itself, but also of its utter futility in man. The cosmic will presents itself to us objectively under the form of the great natural forces, gravitation, heat, light, electricity, chemical affinity, etc., then as the organizing power of life in vegetables and animals, finally as human self-consciousness and sociability. These, Schopenhauer says, are what is really meant by the Platonic ideas, and they figure in his philosophy as first differentiations of the primordial will, coming between its absolute unity and the individualized objects and events that fill all space and time. It is the function of architecture, plastic art, painting, and poetry to give each of these dynamic ideas, singly or in combination, its adequate interpretation for the aesthetic sense. One art alone brings us a direct revelation of the real world, and that is music. Musical compositions have the power to express not any mere ideal embodiment of the underlying will, but the will itself in all its majesty and unending tragic despair. Schopenhauer's theory of knowledge is given in the essay by which he obtained his doctor's degree on the fourfold root of the sufficient reason. Notwithstanding this rather alarming title, it is a singularly clear and readable work. The standpoint is a simplification of Kant's critique. The objects of consciousness offer themselves to the thinking, acting subject as grouped presentations in which there is nothing sudden, nothing single. 1. When a new object appears to us, it must have a cause, physical, physiological, or psychological, and this we call the reason why it becomes. 2. Objects are referred to concepts of more or less generality, according to the logical rules of definition, classification, and inference, that is, the reason of their being known. 3. Objects are mathematically determined by their position relatively to other objects in space and time, that is, the reason of their being. 4. Practical objects or ends of action are determined by motives. The motive is the reason why one thing rather than another is done. The last sufficient reason takes us to ethics. Schopenhauer agrees with Kant in holding that actions considered as phenomena are strictly determined by motives, so much so that a complete knowledge of a man's character and environment would enable us to predict his whole course of conduct through life. Nevertheless, each man as a timeless subject is and knows himself to be free. To reconcile these apparently conflicting positions, we must accept Plato's theory that each individual's whole fate has been determined by an antenatal or transcendental choice for which he always continues responsible. Nevertheless, cases of religious conversion and the like prove that the eternal reality of the will occasionally asserts itself 
in radical transformations of character and conduct. In ethics, Schopenhauer distinguishes between two ideals which may be called relative and absolute good. Relative good agrees with the standard of what in England is known as universalistic hedonism, the greatest pleasure combined with the least pain for all sensitive beings, each agent counting for no more than one. Personally passionate, selfish, and brutal, Schopenhauer still had a righteous abhorrence of cruelty to animals, whereas Kant had no such feeling. But positive happiness is a delusion, and no humanity can appreciably diminish the amount of pain produced by vital competition, recognized by our philosopher before Darwin, in the world. Therefore Buddhism is right, and the higher morality bids us extirpate the will to live altogether by ascetic practices and meditation on the universal vanity of things. Suicide is not allowed, for while annihilating the intelligence, it would not exclude some fresh incarnation of the will. And the last dying wish of Schopenhauer was that the end of his life might be the end of all living for him. Herbart J. F. Herbart, 1776-1841, occupies a peculiar position among the German idealists. Like the others, he distinguishes between reality and appearance, and like Schopenhauer in particular, he altogether rejects Hegel's identification of reality with reason. But alone among post-Kantian metaphysicians, he is a pluralist. According to him, things in themselves, the eternal existence underlying all phenomena, are not one but many. So far his philosophy is a return to the pre-Kantian systems of Wolf and Leibniz. But whereas the monads of Leibniz were credited with an inward principle of evolution carrying them forever onward through an infinite series of progressive changes, Herbart pushes his metaphysical logic to the length of denying all change and all movement to the eternal entities of which reality is made up. Herbart is entitled to the credit, whatever it may be worth, of devising a system unlike every other in history. For while Hegel has a predecessor in Heraclitus, his rival combines the Eleatic immobilization with a pluralism that is all his own. It is not, however, on these paradoxes that his reputation rests, but on more solid services as a psychologist and an educationalist. Without any acquaintance, as would seem, with the work doing in Britain, Herbart discarded the old faculty psychology, conceiving mentality as made up of presentations, among which a constant competition for the field of consciousness is going on. And it is to this view that such terms as inhibition and threshold of consciousness are due, and the enormous prominence now given to the idea of value in ethics may be traced back to the teaching of a thinker whom he greatly influenced, F. E. Benneke, 1798-1854. End of section 11.